One of the major hurdles facing the coronavirus vaccine, getting people to take it. This issue of trust is especially deep in the black and Latino communities. Even though they are being hit disproportionately hard by the pandemic, mistrust of the government and of the medical community may make some people reluctant to trust the safety of the vaccine. Welcome, welcome, and welcome back to the Political Baby Podcast, brought to you by Maro, a.k.a. Political Baby, a.k.a. The Revolutionary Shorty. Now, you know the vibes. We're here to make academia sexy. Now, things are going to be very different around here. Hold on. I said, hold up. Wait a minute. (laughs) It's nothing to worry about. Just a change in structure. Um, it seems like everyone loves the format of the very pilot episode, Baby Birkin and No Role Models. Go check that out. But there's also a subsect of you guys that love like having other people on this show and listening to their perspectives. So I'm going to do a compromise with each new episode in the first half. You'll hear my opinion and my analysis and the political baby treatment. And in the second half, we're going to have the int- like the, the guests that I have on. I will play excerpts from the interview so i am so excited if you love it leave a review on apple podcast as well as an instagram at political baby pod so we sorry i'm just talking fast we're trying to get through this really quickly um this is episode nine i know guys still on episode nine but slow and steady wins the race um each episode is a work of art so i just want you guys to be patient with me but every friday you're gonna get a new episode so i'm so happy about that so antidote yes the episode is titled antidote and trust issues it's about medical racism and anti-vaccine hesitancy shout out to travis scott for his song antidote it made my 2016 summer pop shout out to energy for the song trust issues shout out to drake for the song trust issues those artists inspired the title today and then yeah let's get straight into it i'm going to give my analysis and then i will introduce jamaica's own dr dreamy now if anyone knows anything about political baby is that she loves Twitter. In fact, I'm scrolling on my timeline as we speak and I just saw the funniest meme and it reads, if you drink warm water, don't worry about what's in the vaccine. And it kind of alludes to this mystery surrounding the vaccine. Now, there has been an anti-vax movement. So anti-vax stands for anti-vaccine movement. But this is not necessarily new. And I think because people are really seeing it being pushed into the mainstream, people think that this is novel and this is new and just completely unique to COVID-19. But um, actually, in this episode, I'll be unpacking the historical elements concerning it and I think demystifying the vaccine a little bit more for you guys, as well as some deeper analysis surrounding the vaccine. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering, why does this, why does any of this matter? right? Why does it matter that some people don't believe in vaccines? Why does it matter if they are hesitant to take vaccines? Well, for for a number of reasons, apart from the physical harm that can be caused from you, you know, mingling and zhuzhing around unvaccinated, I think there's a philosophical element to it, and it's called epistemic responsibility. And what that means is that it's the responsibility we have regarding our beliefs, 
over our beliefs, right? And how we form those beliefs. Now, cheeky plug, I was on the Motion podcast hosted by Faye OJ. Go check it out, guys. I'll put the link in the description box. And I went on and I said, look, you have to have some degree of knowledge or understanding for you to have an opinion, that you can't have an opinion on vibes and conviction, right? So there is this philosopher called W.K. Clifford. And his argument um, as of the 19th century was that it is wrong always and everywhere for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. And the thing about it is that you can say, well, how does that really affect anyone? And besides, let's say I don't tell anyone to not take the vaccine. Can't I have my belief privately? Well, for W.K. Clifford, he will say, well, there is no such thing as a a private belief because he says that beliefs are always spread through dissemination. Like, for example, when we talk to people in conversations, those your beliefs would be spread kind of subconsciously. Right. And he also says, even if we do not discuss our ideas or beliefs at all, we act a certain way and that influences reality. For example, let's talk about racism. The CEO of Wells Fargo came out the other day and said, and said that he did not believe that black people had the talent that they needed at Wells Fargo, right? His, his, the company. And before he said that, he was possibly thinking it, right? He possibly didn't say it. It was a private belief that he most likely held, but that would have trickled down into recruitment practices, hiring practices. And this belief is completely founded on insufficient evidence. And so even if up until the time he said it was not actually disseminated verbally, it was manifesting quietly and subconsciously and trickling down the entire company. So yeah, so I think with WK Clifford is that we are morally and epistemically responsible for the beliefs that we hold. And I think on a philosophical angle, that's why anti-vax sentiments, that's why vaccine hesitancy is very important because it begs a philosophical question. To what extent are we responsible for the beliefs that we hold? I think the elephant in the room is really about race. Now, I'm going to read out this quote by two French medical practitioners, Jean-Paul Emira and Camille Loche. Um, and they raised this idea of testing the new vaccines on impoverished African populations last year, which rightfully brought about a lot of uproar and outrage. Now, Mira says, please allow me to be provocative. Shouldn't we do this study in Africa where there are no masks, no treatment, no intensive care, a bit like we did in some studies on AIDS. We tried things on prostitutes because they are highly exposed and do not protect themselves. Now, this is deeply problematic, but before we get into further analysis, can I just <laughs> can I just highlight the fact that racists have a tendency to do this one thing, which is that they disguise their racism under the cloak of being provocative, being edgy, being risque. You know, they hide it under quote unquote dark humor. No beloved, it's not edgy. You're just racist. Anyway, and I think there's a lot to be said and especially bringing in history, how African populations have always been seen as lab rats and black bodies that are available for experimentation 
right? It, it's deeply traumatic. And is this fact that they talk about the fact that there are no masks, no treatment, no intensive care. Now we know that PPE and other forms of protection were extremely limited. So I, I, I don't blame people who draw a correlation between you know, this very tight supply not reaching African countries with this desire to want to experiment on these same very vulnerable people who are exposed to this kind of risk. But also, I think another thing can be said about poverty, that the fact that they are poor and impoverished, that somehow removes them from any bodily autonomy, that does somehow justifies African people being at the mercy of the West, being at the mercy of white states. Um, and it's deeply troubling. But again, let's talk, go further into this idea of black bodies being available for experimentation. In 1951, Henrietta Lacks, she died of cervical cancer. The medical practitioners at John Hopkins uh, Hospital took some of her uh, cancerous cells. I used it in some studies. Without obviously her consent or the consent of her family, neither were her family members remunerated for the major contribution that her cells created in some studies. That it, these cells are now called healer cells. Because what it is saying is that black people are worthless and are lab rats because they are black and because they are poor. So there is this intersection with race and class. And we'll later talk about it when I introduce my, my guest. But another example of, of black bodies being open for, would I say, study, open for, in, <laughs> open for, for experimentation is this Tuskegee syphilis study. And it happened, although it happened in America in 1932 till 1972, that kind of historical mistrust translated across the pond and is about the Tuskegee syphilis study. And we'll come back for further analysis. A sharecropper in Alabama in 1932, Freddie Lee Tyson was one of 623 black men recruited into a medical study. We now know it as the infamous syphilis study at Tuskegee. Freddie thought it was a program to provide free health care. He had no idea that the doctor's only interest was to study the infection he had been born with. They did not tell them they had syphilis, and the only thing they told them they had bad blood, and they were treating the bad blood. But they were not. They were lying to the people. The study was run by the U.S. Public Health Service, white doctors hoping to chart the natural progression of syphilis in black men. He did not know that he was in a, a study. He did not know. The government went to extremes to keep it that way. Even when penicillin became a safe and reliable cure, the study doctors actively prevented the men from getting it, circulating secret lists asking health providers not to treat them. When some of the men were drafted into World War II, the researchers had them rejected from the army, so their syphilis would not be treated. The second big elephant in the room is religion. Duh. Now, I'm going to take this from a, a more like, would I say, Christian lens, because that is my faith. And I think a lot of the conspiracy theories I have seen are Christian based. However, religion does apply to 
many other faiths i do remember that some members of the muslim community some did have fears that the vaccine could possibly hold pork and if you guys don't know pork is not halal meat it's not um it's haram it's forbidden they're not allowed to eat it um so that although it has been refuted that the vaccine does not have pork it is still a very valid concern that any member of the faith would have and i think for christians in specific their concerns are quite almost twofold number one that kind of binary between religion and science where religion is seen as opposite of science and therefore med medicine being a subsect of science therefore religion and medicine would also be opposing i think also the second thing that's really important is the book of revelations and this idea of end times this idea of rapture this idea of the mark of the beast and the antichrist because there is in the bible there's this part where in revelation 13 of the mark of the beast and how the antichrist would try and brand the children of god and try and test their faith so there is this kind of concern but you know what let's 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 i think let's start with the binary between science and religion from as long as i remember there has been this dichotomy and i think really is because historically science has been tried to use to disprove god so i think people have this notion that the presence of science is the absence of god and vice versa that religion and christianity cannot cohabitate that they are mutually exclusive and i will play this clip of uh, Pastor Chris Oyaki Lome or talking about the vaccine and the rhetoric that she uses is quite troubling but listen to it and listen realize that if you uttered if you if you will believe in Christ and in the word of God the way you believe in this vaccine there'll be power in your mouth he made us healers when did we start making such kind of recommendations to God's people if I say to someone you shall live and not die that's it for him isn't that isn't that the Bible that you read so what we're seeing here if we look at the rhetoric the language it almost questions the validity of of one's christianity for when he says you know if you believe in god the same way you believe in the vaccine almost as if to say that you are not a genuine christian because you rely on the vaccine to heal you now the one thing i would just definitely say he is correct in is when he says that god made us healers i don't think that there is any binary or should be any opposition between medicine and christ i think the second point about people really thinking oh is the vaccine some tool of the antichrist the mark of the beast that's put in revelation you know i'm not going to go too much into that reason being this kind of critique or this fear or this conspiracy theory time and time again i remember when under obama's administration with obamacare and how he wanted to help track you know more people and everyone was like oh that's the microchip, that's 666, that's the mark of the beast. I also remember that same critique for Bill Gates and his development policies in Africa entering into 2012, although his policies are quite questionable. But again, this idea of, oh, the mark of the beast, uh, revelation, end times, he's bringing in the microchip. So this is really not new. And I don't want to kind of give any more, I don't think he holds any water. So I'm just gonna skip right ahead. 
Now, the moment you guys have all been waiting for, it's definitely time for my guest. I'm so excited. Uh, you guys should sit tight, grab some popcorn, because this resume is impressive and comprehensive, okay? <laughs> now, my guest is a Caribbean medical student who has completed an intercalated degree in management at Imperial Business School. In recognition of the structural challenges that students face, he also works relentlessly to make access to these institutions more equitable for students from underrepresented backgrounds. He's the African and Caribbean student lead within the King's College London's Widening Participation Department. He's a governor and the equalities lead at Preston Manor School. And he's also serving as the only external member of Imperial College London's inaugural Black Students Advisory Panel. Additionally, he has co-founded The Ladder Project to help holistically develop students and prepare them for life after school. Now, before I go on, just so you guys know, if it's not evident already, he is academic access royalty. Now for his commitment, he has been recognized as one of the most outstanding students in the UK by future leaders, Rev Recruitment and the Association of Jamaican Nationals, as well as recognition awards from the Amos Bursary and KCL. Most important, most recently, he has been awarded the Akindole Medical Scholarship, the Diana Award 2020, and the Dr. Abbas Khan Medal for Outstanding Contribution in the Service of Society. Now, please welcome Jamaica's own Dr. Dreamy. Please again welcome James Freighter. Hi everyone. Um, thank you for that introduction. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure you're talking about as royalty because it's not me. Um, but I appreciate the introduction all the same. Very nice. Thank you so much, James. I'm so happy to have you here on the Political Baby podcast. Now, I said earlier in the episode, I've been seeing this meme that makes fun of the mystery of the vaccine. Like I saw another one that says, if you eat McDonald's, you don't need to worry about what's in the vaccine. So explain it to me like I'm five. What really is in the vaccine? I think in this particular vaccine, and it's yeah. a bit different than like normal vaccines, mm -hmm. vaccines come in like different um, shapes and sizes. Um, but I, I'll explain a bit further. So I think ordinarily you can have like um, a dead version, um, inactivated version of the virus and vaccines put into the body and your body makes um, antibodies. You can also have um, parts of the virus. But in this case, um, what this vaccine has is something called mRNA. And in short, just not overcomplicate everything. It just tells your body um, what, um, antibodies it needs to make. So basically say to your body, hey, here's, here's the instructions and this is, how, this is how to make antibodies and make the antibodies. Um, and that seemed to be like faster and much safer than sort of obviously putting like a, a, um, a dead or like parts of a virus into a person. Um, but I think generally speaking, like people which never heard of mRNA. So mm. I've seen about... Um, it's going to take over your DNA. Um, it's, it's going to mutate you. My auntie told me the other day that um, the vaccine will give you scales and you turn into a lizard. Um, I've been told that you grow, what is it, grow another head? Or that um, the government, 
uh, they they want to implant chips into you. Mm. Um, them African them. aunties. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard a, a lot of different things um, about mRNA. And I think, actually, that's partly due to the fact that the... I, I'm sure there was some planning around it, but there wasn't enough planning to really demystify the vaccine. Um, mm-hmm. I think if there was um, more sort of to effort or making sure that particularly um I'll, I'll use this term i don't like it, but like uh, particularly ethnic minorities like targeting them with informational like um i don't know like videos or or just leaflets mm. or whatever um, just information just disseminate information in a, in a clear and easy way to understand i think you avoid a lot of these um conspiracies because that's what a lot of them are I think that's particularly insightful how you touched on a few conspiracy theories. Let's go deeper into that. What are some core issues surrounding this kind of hesitancy and anxiety towards the vaccine? So I think um, there there are a few things. Um, <laughs> um, I always find sort of the the theories people come up with um, funny, but actually I have to understand that some of them are rooted in in, in real life sort mm. of experience or historical evidence. So I think uh, we touched on the cultural element. I think definitely within different cultures, um, you have certain beliefs, uh, even if, if it's around like um, natural remedies that mm. people take when you have like colds or flus, etc. I think you always have that um, within communities. And um, the fact that like a lot of our medicines come from nature, mm. I don't think that's, that's actually too ridiculous. Um, but actually, uh, I think a lot of the times, saying, hey, like, drink drink water in the morning and it, it, your body will turn into this this vaccine or, or a virus-fighting machine. Mm. I'm not sure that's going to work. Or, like, those, those quite ridiculous things that actually just clearly aren't true. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I think also, touching on the sort of the, the historical um, evidence that we have, like, a lot of people reference the... Um, polio vaccine, I think it was 1955, mm. where it's just a, a big, big mess up, um, basically, like, in short. And I think a lot of people still remember that, and that's used to sort of scaremonger a lot of people into thinking, oh, are you sure um, that you want to be taking this vaccine? Yeah. Are you sure this, this is something you kind of trust the government to, to do, particularly um, with how quickly it's sort of been rolled out? We can touch on it a bit later about, like, how quickly um, it's sort of been put out but I think that's that's a huge source of anxiety for a lot of people in that um, vaccines they, they've heard and it's true only take years to develop mm. and it's something that takes a long time to sort of pass through the safety checks etc but I think um, we need to appreciate that this pandemic is unprecedented it's extraordinary there we we haven't seen anything like this in a long time I can't remember what the last pandemic was it might have been the SARS um, outbreak even that, it wasn't worldwide. Um, and so actually it means that a lot of funding, a lot of funding put behind it, a lot of resources, a lot of expertise. There's a lot of collaboration. Um, MR, mRNA um, is different type of technology. So actually I think that can be developed faster as well. So there's a lot of factors that went into actually creating the vaccine um, on a much faster timeline mm-hmm. and wider scale. Um I think also WhatsApp has a, a huge role to play in the sort of conspiracy theories and, and the scaremongering. Mm. Um, before sort of this era, it wasn't as easy to to spread false information. Yeah. 
And I think that's something we really have to appreciate that social media makes it super easy. Literally one click means you can share it with all the people in your contact list or all the people in your social media. And a lot of people don't even read like articles that they share. They, they read the title, vaccine will kill. <sighs> I need to send this to all my family members. Um, or I think a lot of older people don't know that, that, that videos can be doctored. Um, so they'll send videos like, look, the video has shown you this. <laughs> videos can be edited too. Um, yeah. Can be edited. Articles from um, conspiracytheory999.com. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to read that article. Um, exactly. Thank you for sending it to me. <laughs> um, but I also, uh, I, think, I think we owe them some um, grace in that actually we've grown up with technology. We, we, we have a better understanding of it. They don't. So I'm often always like fact-checking um, a lot of things that my aunties or uncles send me, even my parents, and telling them, hey, like, this isn't a credible source without being patronising or, or sort of um, like bashing them. Mm, that's very interesting. And I like the fact that you touched on the role of WhatsApp and how that has fueled some of these fears. And earlier in the episode, I spoke about epistemic responsibility, about how people have both a moral and epistemic you know, duty to challenge and to know how their beliefs are formed and how they are spread. So do you think big tech and all these social media platforms are responsible for the fears surrounding the vaccine? And do you think they should have a more, would I say, proactive role in curbing this misinformation? Secondly, I would also throw that out to celebrities and public figures. The other day, um, Letitia Wright was, there was a lot of outrage because she shared a video that had very anti-vaccine sentiment. Tiffany Haddish, again, you know, ran into a little bit of, of outrage because she was, I think, sharing a lot of, again, fears around the vaccine and, and whatnot. So do you think, number one, that big tech has a responsibility for the kind of vaccine fears and vaccine beliefs that are formed? Secondly, are celebrities also responsible for this anti-vaccine sentiments as well? Should they be made responsible? Mm. So I think um, big tech have more of a role to play than celebrities. Um, mm. I think obviously big tech, um, and we're talking specifically social media, but I guess search engines, etc., can can be in there too. Um, but they create these platforms and they allow information to be shared. So I think actually it, they, they do have a duty to make sure that information being shared one isn't harmful and two um, isn't it isn't false, um, <clears throat> especially because of how easy it is for sort of fake news. Um, crazy that we use that term even though Donald Trump created it but um, uh, um, to make sure that fake news doesn't spread um, and actually I've seen that particularly on Twitter they do like if if you if you click an article to mm-hmm. share it without reading it they'll say to you hey like do you want to read this article or just to double check the information in it mm-hmm. so I think move um, because actually it's, it's definitely made me think twice about oh actually that's, that's a good shot maybe I should just triple check that um, everything in this article mm. is as it should be, um, so that I'm, not, I'm, I'm not spreading false information or even spreading things that I don't believe in um, or don't believe to be true or highlighting them. Um, and I think um, so. The answer to that is definitely yes. Um, and it, I'm not sure what software they can use to sort of sift through fake news and make sure it doesn't go anywhere. 
Um, but I think they definitely should be putting disclaimers everywhere so that people are aware that this there's potential that this could be fake news or this is where the source of information is coming from. So be very clear that actually there might be some bias here. I, I like the move that they did with sort of, um, I think it was like public figures and put in that, hey, this is a member of um, parliament or this is a member of Congress mm. or whatever. Um, just, just to show that like, these are who these people are and things they may say may be aligned with sort of organisations they represent or um, sort of parties, etc. Um, with celebrities, some celebrities are stupid. Um, they, they become famous overnight and now they have a platform where they can spread misinformation if they want to. Um, I don't think that um, celebrities, it, it should be on them to sort of um, essentially like spread the right information because they're people mm. in there. Um, but I do think they should be held accountable. I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think we should we should always like hold them accountable. And I think platforms they're on should also hold them accountable to say, hey, this is false information and you're spreading it. If you don't stop spreading it, we're going to have to remove it from the platform or we're going to have to like um, delete these posts or whatever, um, mm-hmm. stuff like that. In the case like Tiffany Haddish and all, all that stuff, I just think, <laughs> I only can just close the room and, and, and be done with it. Um, yeah. I think that if, if that's something that she sort of believed or mm-hmm. she would sort of highlight, then although she has a platform, I'm glad she shared it so that people, people could call it out. And to actually correct some of the things that were being said, or but I just didn't like that people were attacking her. I think people should attack the video and the uh, things that were um, because actually, if if you want to encourage people to take the vaccine, then you you need to rebuttal the points that are being made in the video. Yeah, uh, because attacking her just kind of takes away from the fact that hey, we need to be, yeah. we need to be fighting misinformation. <clears throat> now we're gonna play a game that I made up called "Who Said That." So with this game, it's a new game I just introduced to my podcast. Basically, I pick out a tweet from Twitter and then we discuss around that tweet. So I got one from your Twitter, James. So I'm going to read it out. I was going to choose a very cheeky one, but I'm going I'm to stay on brand. Okay. So let me read out the tweet. It says, No one ever considers the people that are native to these Caribbean countries. The Caribbean doesn't just exist as a place for holidaymakers to consume. It's home to millions of vulnerable people. Droves of people are carrying their infected selves to countries that don't have the infrastructure to deal with this virus. The NHS is supposed to be one of the best healthcare systems in the world and it's bursting at the seams. So for context, this is in relation to people, particularly white tourists who go to countries um, like developing countries for holiday during the pandemic. So my question to you is that, you know, people have been making comparisons to colonialism. So I just wanted to ask, like, do you think that this is a fair comparison? You know, that white tourists holidaying and traveling during during the pandemic is akin to the colonial times? Um, you saw so many examples of, um, and this, this was particularly um, white people. Throughout history, we've seen how the West has kind of ventured across the globe 
um, to just consume whatever's in their path. Um, and then they'll sort of go home and look, look what I found. Um, I, I've just invented this. I just found it. I invented tea um, because I found it somewhere else. Um, and I think that's just continued into pandemic um, in that actually even, and, and this even transcends race, but um, I think just just a virtue of like living in the UK, for example, I feel like we feel entitled to sort of have a break or mm. escape from this pandemic or um, our mental health is suffering. So we mm. deserve to, to go to another country, take some time out um, and sort of recuperate. Um, when actually the countries that we're going to, people don't have that luxury who had tested positive for COVID mm. and didn't want to quarantine. So they would, they would essentially sneak out of quarantine in, mm. in vulnerable countries Barbados being one of them, uh, I can't remember what the other country was, but um, this, I'm now more focused on the Caribbean. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of people sort of use the fact that actually, so I'm, I'm also twofold. The Caribbean is heavily dependent on tourism. So actually that's probably why um, a lot of them just haven't, well, couldn't afford to close their, their borders indefinitely, um, which meant that a lot of people saw an opportunity to go and just consume everything on those islands um, and in those countries. And now we're sort of seeing ramifications in that, right? The economies are, are still hemorrhaging money. Um, COVID cases aren't lessening. So we were seeing in the UK, oh, like the pandemic must be over June 21st. But actually for a lot of um, resource poor countries, this pandemic will last much longer and, and the effects would be far more severe. And they're, they're reliant on sort of um, higher income countries donating resources and, and, and sort of, paying into stuff like the COVAX um, scheme where obviously it's Alliance and they they provide vaccines for, for countries um, that need them. I, I think I heard that Nigeria had like the first sort of batch of vaccines, was it last week? Mm, um, yeah. So yeah, like I, I just think um, it, it comes from uh, like an entitlement um, and these countries bear the brunt of that entitlement and that um, that need to go and consume mm-hmm. other people's things. Yeah, and um, as you kind of alluded to before, we've seen that throughout history um, where Westerners feel like they can go and consume everything and then leave countries in, in worse states than they were, um, referencing our colonialism all through the globe. I think that's pretty profound. And now that we're on the topic of kind of colonialism and race i think one big thing that's quite important is the disproportionate effect um, of covid19 on people of color and black people especially what really is the story behind that can you please shed some more light why we're seeing um that more black people are being affected and dying from covid and so other people we need to look at things like um living conditions we need to look at the sort of jobs that people do the areas that black people live in um and they're likely to sort of be exposed and and we know that so black people are more likely to live or black people in general more likely to live in urban areas more likely to live in overcrowded houses more likely to live in the private areas and more likely to have jobs that are um like public facing um, so I, I think those are clear sort of examples and um, explanations as to why we, we, we're seeing those disparities. So yeah, I, I, I literally, I, I think for me, that is it. 
And I think that needed to sort of be pushed through um, a lot more. And sort of the whole thing is just very much like you're BAME and more likely to get COVID. So even on risk assessments, they would ask you, oh, are, are you black? Are you BAME? And then that, that sort of meant that you were high risk. When actually it needed a lot more nuance than that. Um, and I thought the explanations were super lazy. And, and even the sort of interrogations of that report and of sort of the government were lazy because it was like, we're more likely to die. What are you doing about it? Actually, you know, we're talking about the sort of the condition that people are coming from and the condition that people are living in and how are we going to make sure that we fix those problems because that's what's causing people to die and we weren't having enough of those conversations they, they were too focused on um like race he's black make sure he doesn't die no mm -hmm. he or he's he he has a more public facing job he lives in a um, overcrowded house he lives in a more urban area because if, if you look at sort of the rates around the country london had sort of one of the highest death rates because it's, it's densely populated. If you mm. look at city, you probably find the same thing. Um, if you look at sort of the southwest, where it's a bit more sparsely populated, you probably see that less people are dying or less people are getting COVID. Um, so yeah, I, I think, yeah, those explanations um, that don't rely on you looking at race. Now let's turn up the heat in here. Let's do some role play because we're about to make academia sexy. So instead of, you know, how they play the sexy nurse or <laughs> the sexy school teacher, <laughs> instead of that, let's play like a sexy health minister or sexy finance minister or just anyone high up in the leadership let's say in Jamaica, how would you have handled the COVID-19 pandemic? What would be your response? And that is our role play. Oh, you're really trying to make academia sexy, huh? <laughs> I love that for you. Do you know what I, I can't, I don't know if I can fully answer that because mm. I think it's, it's difficult because you're, you're battling a lot of things. Um, a disease that you don't know really much about, everyone's still trying to figure out. Mm. Uh, Lack of infrastructure and um, resources to tackle the um, Israel. Some people aren't obeying to laws, like lockdown laws, some people are. Then you have to think about the economy. And actually, although I want to protect the population, I also want to stimulate the economy with um, reserves that you don't have. Mm. So me, I'm actually glad I'm not the, I'm not the helpful finance minister. Honestly, I don't know what I'll do because mm. you're literally constantly balancing the health, the population health with um, the need of sort of the economy. <sighs> it's difficult, I think, um, because, uh, so, so the reason, because even, even then, because even I spoke about, oh, tourism, etc. Mm -hmm. because the Caribbean is so reliant on tourism, mm. it's even difficult to say, oh, they should have closed the borders indefinitely and like, mm. but I definitely think there should have been harsher punishments for people who broke the rules. Mm -hmm. um, so like, that sent a clearer message to people about actually, if you come to these countries, you have to obey by our laws and our rules to protect the communities that you're going into. The the governments, the tri I also think within the region, let's say the Caribbean, um, if, if I was sort of a minister there, um, concerted effort um, amongst like all the all the countries. Um, I think that there needs to be more of a concerted and, and like coordinated response so that actually everyone's on this kind of same level and they're helping each other out. I think currently there's been too many like individual strategies. Mm -hmm. which can work bigger countries with more resources. But actually, when you're all kind of struggling to stay afloat, I think you need to band together in, in, a, in a time like this. And there has been some level of cooperation, but or any sort of disaster of this scale. What else would I have done? Um, hey, hey, can I, can I ask the audience? What would you do? <laughs> what do y'all do? Y'all here listening. <laughs> Contribute. <laughs> what would you do? 
What would you do? No, actually, yeah, I'm I'm interviewing. I'm capturing this shit now. <laughs> <laughs> the roles have reversed. <laughs> what would you do? Help, help, help and finance minister of Nigeria. What would you have done differently? Me? Yeah, you. I think for me, I Nigeria was doing so well at the at the at the start of of lockdown. I praised Nigeria. Oh my lord! I have never ever really openly praised the government, but I was proud. They did all the measures. Um, but I think my issue is that Nigeria had a head start. I think once it was ravaging through these countries, we had that head start. So in as much as yeah, they were implementing a bit of measures, I I, I think we could have been faster because. I think we had advanced advantage, I use that word so loosely, but um, to see how it was affecting everyone else and to say, hey, like maybe we would, we, we, can, we can be more proactive. I think also another thing is, yes, these countries do not have infrastructure, but there's a lot of corruption. I, the other day there was a video of people running months after the lockdown, right? They're running into these warehouses and they were taking the palliatives. So like all the healthcare, like all the packages to help sustain people through the lockdown. So in as much as I acknowledge that they don't have the infrastructure and the resources, but they are hoarding a lot of it. So for me, that wouldn't come in question. I wouldn't hold that, those resources. I think that would have helped people stay in lockdown a bit longer. And I think a lot of what I would do differently, I would have acted sooner because I could see other countries doing it. Um, I also think in terms of enforcement, I would be tight with that. Um, I, I don't want to say police it because it's a very weird environment right now in Nigeria with policing mm. and stuff. Um, but for example, the government said, hey, all restaurants are shut down. But like, are restaurants shut down? No, they aren't. Everyone's just on vibes. I think that's what... I do Are you on vibes? <laughs> I'm joking. Sorry, continue. I've, I've been I've been a very good girl. Um, actually. <laughs> Next question. Next question. Um, um, that was our sexy non-sexy roleplay, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more. <laughs> and I think to round up the episode, I want to talk to you about decolonization. So last year, summer. They every you know because of George Floyd, I think that sparked an entirely diff like the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, and I think topics about decolonization, like decolonize academia, defund the police, abolish the police, all of that language, that kind of radical lang- language and revolutionary language. Um, I think with STEM fields people sometimes leave that out from the decolonized discussion. And I just wanted to know, can we decolonize medicine and how? So I, I think the first thing is, is, is question everything that you know to be fact. Um, I think there's, there's a long and documented history of um, science coming out with all these claims about sort of race and biology and that um, black people are more likely to have this or black people are less likely to do this. Um, and actually, I think as we've we sort of evolved um, and, and, and as we sort of done more research and, and become more woke, quote unquote, I think we, we've realised that actually race, like you, you can't apply race to any biological difference that you see in people because uh, biological differences are very individual to people. And actually, there are very few things that are, can be seen across like a community level, i.e. sickle cell. And I think actually, if you look at um, a lot of things that you see today, even about like pain thresholds or um, 
like even high blood pressure and all these things, like there, there is no biological explanation for why sort of black people have um, higher rates of high blood pressure or cardiovascular disease, et cetera, blah, blah. Um, and actually a lot of them are down to sort of social factors, cultural factors, e environmental factors, and obviously like economic um, factors as well, which all sort of stem from the structural and systematic prejudices that we observe in society. Um, and like even today, um, I think it was a few years ago, I can't remember what the study was. Um, I think it was, I think it was a few years ago. They, they saw that the study with medical students and, um, and like doctors or physicians, and they asked them about sort of um, the thickness, I think of black people's skin or um, their pain thresholds, et cetera. And the sort of, sort of consensus was that black people just felt less pain. And obviously we've observed that in so many cases where um, black people don't often get the, the pain medication that they need or like black women in childbirth don't get allergies that they need. And obviously we know that black women in the UK, five times more likely to die from childbirth, et cetera. So there's the, 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 the differences that we're seeing and people often put it down to race. I think even women coronavirus um, at the start, they said, oh, but like, like black people are more susceptible because of vitamin D deficiencies and stuff like that. Mm. <laughs> Boring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like... It's, it's just it's just lazy it's like lazy medicine and mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that we sort of learned from like 200 years ago 250 years ago um during slavery that we're still using today um so yeah i, I think it's, it's just question everything I, I think that that is the real way to decolonize it it's like question everything and actually um when you're learning about things always question why it's in reference to white people why is it that it's mm -hmm. what five times like like for example blood pressure it's, it's X times more um, prevalent in black communities than in white communities. Why is it not that actually the range includes black people and, and, and uh, other people of colour? Word, 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 word. You're um, poetic, you're spitting bars. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think too often um, white people are the norm and everybody else deviates from the norm. Mm. And that absolutely, literally, a lot of things we're learning comes straight from um, 18th century, sorry, 19th century um, um, science and scientists. And with that said, thank you so much, James. Thank you to my political babies. I love you guys so much. If you like this format, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and message me at political baby pod. I love you guys. And this is the end of episode nine. Mwah. Bye.